You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. How slow is a slow loris? <laughs> <laughs> so, it moves at about... What can they teach us? Yeah, Chris, knowing that they are the only venomous primate, I my, my mind was blown that there's actually a huge issue with slow lorries being kept as pets. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. And welcome back, Angie, to a very, not so slow, it's a sloth, slow. it's very slow, <laughs> Loris. <laughs> so. You took the slow words out of my mouth, Chris, uh, so good uh, job. Yeah, these adorable primates. Adorable, but venomous, right? That's why we picked it this week. We had always talked during our uh, during the October holiday season with Halloween about finding uniquely spooky or different species, and this one was on the list and it didn't quite make it mm-hmm. <laughs> into, into our October lineup. But when I heard venomous primate, I I, I and I'm, of course looking at a slow loris, they're just darling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was in, and so it's uh, been a very fun couple weeks prepping for this podcast. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We've been busy. And, We've been and, busy. and I'll tell you, this this little creature deserves our extra time and our extra attention. Um, I had no idea that all the species of slow lorises were uh, either threatened, endangered, mm-hmm. critically mm-hmm. endangered. Mm-hmm. In fact, the job in slow loris is critically endangered, and it's on the top 25 list of primates that are in the world that are considered the most endangered of going extinct. So they are just really easy on the eye uh, and a beautiful little creature from South and Southeast Asia. But yeah, as one, one uh, website put it, they're uh, nocturnal gremlins. <laughs> they do look like it. They absolutely do. And they are so unique, Angie. I mean, this is a lot of fun physiology. Uh, oh what, yes, a lot of a, a lot of fun physiology. Not just uh, that they're venomous, but just how they're built, how they're designed. Uh, their evolution was fun this week. I thought uh, so. It should be it well, should be and, a good podcast. And uh, when you mentioned you know venomous mammals, I, I the 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 only one that came to my head that I could think of was the platypus. Right. So that we did mm-hmm. that one so long ago, episode seventeen. But there are some other venomous mammals we'll talk about but this one like they say i mean it it can kill people and it has it's not out to kill people but people that are accidentally bitten can have uh, a toxic reaction to the venom and die so i was like wow okay this this is a creature we need to to know more about well yeah chris knowing that they are the only venomous primate. I my my mind was blown that there's actually a huge issue with slow lorries being kept as pets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we'll get to that in the podcast. Uh, they do not make a good pet for nope. several reasons, no, and no, no, no. Uh, the pet trade is part of what's causing some of their significant significant declines in the past twenty years or so. Yeah. Uh, so we'll definitely touch on that today because I was I was pretty riled up. <laughs> I sent you a whole oh, bunch of did. links. It was awful. It's like, oh my gosh, I, look awful. at this on the internet. So uh at any rate, yes, we'll definitely talk about that. And I'm really excited to uh, throughout the podcast, I'm gonna highlight a lot of the behavior work that's done by Dr. Anna Nikaris, uh, who is a professor who spent her, dedicates her life to saving a, the slow loris and uh, other similar species. And she's the founder of a nonprofit called the Little Fireface Project. Uh, so we'll talk about that at the end of the podcast and hopefully get people excited about what you at home, the listener, uh, can do to help save these beautiful, nocturnal, and uh, slightly venomous. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny, you know, before we get into describing them, the loris named itself. Uh, the old Dutch are the ones that kind of described them. And in and, and old Dutch, the, the Lorius means clown. And mm-hmm. 
you know, the, the studies don't know, you know, why they called them that if they thought they were funny or they kind of looked like clowns. Uh, but later explorers noticed how slow they were. And so they kind of, you know, talked to them. They're, they're like sloths. So that's why they became the slow loris. And we'll talk about that with physiology. Uh, but before we describe it, Mangie, I just want to say to Brian, thank you for joining us on Patreon. And also uh, from the email from Jill, Hollow Kingdom, I will try to read that. I promise you. I've got like three books to read with authors that want to come on the podcast. So I've got to throw in my uh, another book in there and I'll try to get that. But thank you so much for the emails. Brian, thank you for joining us. You know, you're helping giving back to conservation and supporting us. So it means so much for Angie and I, you know, a, a, a latte a month supports the All Creature Podcast and your support in conservation. So thank you. And also keep in mind that those commercials that you hear are helping conservation as Chris and I uh, donate 25% of any revenue generated to the different conservation organizations that we host each month. So uh, yes, uh, listening for conservation. And I'd like to give a huge shout out to to two people that gave us an awesome five-star review on iTunes, which is just wonderful. It keeps me going. uh, And I send them to Chris. Uh, There was one that pretty much almost brought me to tears from Gino40, saying that we were a life-changing podcast and inspiring. So it was just very, very thoughtful, very descriptive, uh, rating their favorite podcasts, which is awesome, I think, for other people that are maybe just finding our material. Uh, So thank you, Gino Forty. Send us an email. Join us on uh, the Facebook group so we can interact more because I would like to hear more about your story. And also a big thank you to Anne is Right. She is right. Mm-hmm. She said her podcast is amazing and educational. So thank you, Anne. We really, really appreciate that. Appreciate that. And if you haven't already for a holiday gift to Chris and I, please hop on iTunes uh, and give us a five-star review and some kind words. Uh, we'd really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much. It does. We read those. And then Angie sent this to me in the morning. It's a, it was awesome waking up to that here in New Zealand. And it was this wonderful email. So our, our review. So thank you so much for that. Now, Angie, there are nine species, roughly. That's what the Duke Lemur Center has. So I, I, I will trust. I them. saw eight. I yeah. saw five, but Duke Lemur Center. We've highlighted their work a lot. So I and the data changes right as mm-hmm. we get more of these genetic studies going. So yeah, uh, I'll, I th- I'll, I'll tend to go with them. Mm-hmm, absolutely, science. We love it. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. So, a general loris. What do you? What, I don't know which one you're going to pick to describe, <laughs> but they're all generally look very similar just sizes are the big differences i think in some coat color patterns but yeah if you're a child of like the 80s if i say night gremlin uh that's pretty pretty darn close <laughs> yeah, now yeah, yeah. although the gremlin gremlins had more pointy ears but in general the slow loris are going to have a round head um a narrow snout snout that's not too big or broad and they have huge eyes right because they're nocturnal and these eyes are just i mean cover a large percentage of their face, but they're darling. And as Chris mentioned with the different species, their coat pattern, their colors are pretty much species dependent. But in general, they usually have a light brown coat uh, with darker colored stripes running down their back. Their fur is pretty thick and their ears are rounded, but it does hide their ears because this coat is pretty pretty dense. So they almost look like they don't have ears when you're just looking at a photo of them. And their face too, besides these big eyes and this this narrow snout, uh, they're going to have a dark teardrop shaped markings around these big eyes. And then in addition to that, they have a white stripe between their eyes that goes to the top of their forehead and ends on their nose. So like forehead to nose. So it, it gives a kind of a mask-like appearance or really it really makes the eyes almost look like they have a darker uh, eyeshadow on or something like that. Uh, but it also, I think, uh, from a cute factor, having that face marking with the white stripe and then the darker eyes helps, helps them out in the cute department. Def- definitely doesn't hurt them, that's for sure. And then lastly, their tail is pretty much like a stump. So and it's hidden underneath all their fur. So you're you're not going to be able to see it. Yeah, it's rare for a, a, a small primate not to have a long tail. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, even our lemurs, you know, very, mm-hmm. very closely related have long tails, right? And 
but you know, speaking of lemurs, like they 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 have a lot of similarities. Really, what you're going to see the differences is in the sizes. So I went the the largest and the smallest. The Philippine slow loris is like nine to ten ounces up to, or that's three hundred grams, and it's only about ten inches long, twenty five centimeters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you get the Bengal slow loris, which could be up to almost five pounds or two over two kilograms. And they could be up to 15 inches long. So not a massive difference, but some differences in size. Where you're going to find the slow lorises is Southeast Asia. So we know this is a, a critical hot spot. Uh, we're losing a lot of biodiversity, um, not just with the palm oil plantations, but with all of the things we've talked about. Uh, in this area of the world that's obviously affecting these animals but you're talking from indonesia borneo the southern philippine islands and then going north from vietnam all the way over into northeastern india and parts of southern china too uh, they can be there now generally lowland forests mangrove forests some subtropical or evergreen forests but they have found them up to five thousand feet high uh, in the woodlands. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think this is Vietnam, like some of the, the highlands there. Uh, some of the uh, the slow loris uh, can be found up there. So it's almost 15 meters high. So that's where, you, that's where you're going to find them. Again, you know, why care these, like every animal we talk about, uh, seed disper- dispersers, pollinators, you know, they help pollinate certain plants. They have an important role in the ecosystem you know, hawks, eagles, even orangutans will eat them sometimes, you know, but they are part of the food web. Uh, they eat things and the things eat them. And they, they have a critical piece in this complex ecosystem of Southeast Asia. Absolutely, Chris. I mean, they have a far reaching web uh, as, as being somewhat in the middle of a food web, if you will. But when you think about how they dine on nectar and transfer pollen between flowers. I just, I, the, the amount of flora and fauna that they impact, I imagine is huge. And then if you look at the slow loris from the cultural perspective, there are very deep rooted beliefs about the supernatural powers of slow loris um, and in story and in folklore from the different various countries that they are found in. In fact, in, I was reading in Borneo. Uh, some people believe that Solores are the gatekeepers to the heavens and that everybody will have a slow Loris waiting for them in their afterlife. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. So, but yeah, from a cultural perspective, they, they definitely uh, do have an impact as well. And what I, we're going to talk a lot today about their conservation and about their threats. And I know Chris is going to talk about the pet trade too. But I was really happy to hear that in all of the native countries where the different species are found, there are laws protecting them in each country and definitely conservation efforts underway. But with that being said, there's not a, there's often not a lot of public awareness uh, for the locals. And so it's a really dynamic situation where the country at hand knows they need to protect them, but it's actually getting how they're yeah, getting that done. Right. And, and depending on the country, a lot of times pet trade is not legal, um, but it's still happening. So, and so it's, there's a ton of hope for the slow loris, but also the time clock is ticking to, uh, to make sure a lot of these, uh, these laws are actually followed and that we're doing our best to conserve the habitat that they live in and thus conserve them. Yeah, I mean they're they they are one of the most sought after illegal exotic pets. Um, they they are captured, and I'm going to go over that here in a second. And just to bring that up, Angie, you were referring to the laws. Yeah, they are listed in Appendix One of CITES, so it is illegal to trade them for commercial purposes. It's it's illegal, uh, but the scientists working to preserve them said, I mean, in Indonesia, they're being openly traded in, in the markets. And also in Vietnam, you're seeing lorises being traded as pets. And they're 
why it is illegal, there's no enforcement of these laws. So I think we need to bring a light to this, that these types of animals that are being captured in the wild, being sold as pets around the world, it's, it's horrific. It's horrific. The, with the slow loris, you will actually see some celebrities have, have quote unquote, kept them as cool pets. You know, they've seen it in social media. Um, people like, oh, I want this pet, you know, this exotic animal is a pet uh, to get likes, you know, on Instagram or whatever. Uh, even so, like Lady Gaga about eight years ago was bit by a slow loris in one of her music videos that they were using. And it was obviously alarmed and was uh, a bit her. And there's actually a video circulating online that uh, there's it's a tickling video it's very it's very popular yes i came uh, not across the video i actually yeah. came across some some really good uh videos opposing yeah keeping slow loris as pets uh, in fact there was a nice one put out by the dodo which is a an animal group that's pretty interesting to follow. I, some of their stuff I love, some of it's questionable. But at any rate, uh, I like this video as far as them telling the story about why you should never keep a Solaris as a pet. And that video is older. I think it's from like 2012 or something, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it was taken down uh, because it looked like the it looked like the human owner was tickling yeah the yep. Loris, but. The, the Solaris had its hands up yeah. and it, it wasn't liking it. Uh, the behaviorists say that's actually a def, uh, distress behavior, yep. a defense yep. mechanism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But of course people respond to, I want one. It's so cute. I actually spent a lot, <laughs> I actually spent a lot of time debating whether or not I should call the slow Loris cute when I'm describing it or talking about it, because I don't really want to push that stereotype at all. Uh, but then, but but then again, we, you and I talk about animals being cute and adorable all the time. And our message is do not keep exotic wildlife mm. as pets. Nope. Even if they are cute, it doesn't matter. That's a normal description to say that they're cute. But then it should be with like, I don't want one in my house. And that's bad. And yeah. And, and what really got me too, digging in a little bit deeper about this, yeah, this, this social media craze about these, uh, these poor creatures is people don't understand too that you you don't want one they're well besides the fact that they're venomous uh they're nocturnal which means they're super busy at nighttime most of them are endangered uh they're wild animals and they have really specialized diets and to make them less poisonous uh they clip their teeth well, yeah, Angie. So uh, I have the steps. So real quick, I'll, 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 we'll get in why they why the teeth are removed. So what they do is they go out in the wild and, and thousands of slow lorises are, are pulled from the wild. Um, they're not fast, right? The name says they're easily captured. Then before they're sold as pets, like you said, their teeth are cut using nail clippers, which is no anesthetic, incredibly painful. And aye, aye, aye. it, it protects, it. I know, it protects people because going back to that tickling video that everybody was like, oh, it's so cute. They raise their arms because we'll, we'll get to the venom, but it's secreted by a gland on the inside of their elbow. So they raise their arms to lick and mix the venom with their saliva. That's what makes it so toxic. And then they bite. And so these pet markets, whatever, cut the teeth so they can't bite and spread that venom. And then obviously you, 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 people have seen this or are of other species, but I know I'm going back to what Jill Robinson, she was the one that did the bear bile. Yes. Um, you know, the Asiatic bears and you see them in these horrific conditions, these cages in these markets, very little food, very little water stacked on top of each other a lot of them die and they're transported around or sold and then smuggled into the united states or wherever else that that you can have some of these pets um and then probably who knows what happens but it is horrific and those it's obviously still an issue in countries like 
I, I don't know what all the rules are in Europe with some, some countries, but in the United States, you were sending me links. You can buy a chimpanzee. I don't even know if I want to say this in the show, but you can yeah. Google it and you can buy a chimpanzee as a pet. Like what? Yeah, I, the heck? I don't know what possessed me to just type in Solor's pet or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it came right up. Uh, and I, I don't, I don't want anybody in my internet browser to think that I want that. I yes, was just doing uh, a little research and yeah, it was quite shocking. Uh, and I, once again, I don't know, I'm assuming I didn't really click on the site, so maybe they're not real or I don't know, but they looked pretty real. And I'm just like, how is this even legal? And then, I mean, the amount of exotic pets on there was just baffling. And, uh, uh, and then, yeah, then there was buy a baby chimpanzee. And so I don't know if that's real or not. Uh, don't, don't do it. Don't even Google it. Don't even give these people hits. Uh, but it just made me think that we maybe need to do more of a podcast investigation, um, about the pet trade and get some experts on here. Um, at least from the United States perspective. And I don't know if this was foreign or I, I like I said, I didn't really, I didn't really want to go down that rabbit hole, Pro- probably get a virus on my computer. I know. Uh, <laughs> so, well, I mean, if you can buy tigers and we well, know we that. Know that. Up, and there, yeah. and there was Jaguar cubs on yeah. there and I mean, leopards and just there, there was not tigers or lions. So I wonder if that, I wonder, cause that's, that's starting to get more attention at, uh, yeah. in the U S um, but well, it I all needs attention. I don't. When, that's the I, thing is, I I don't want to discriminate. It's 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 all it's all so 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 wrong. So yeah. so well, many know. so's in yeah, front of so I know somebody we interviewed. I don't know which if it was one of the rescues groups or not talking about how a lot of the big cat breeders are like it's black market now. You know, behind the scenes, doing it through not public eyes. Sure. You know, yeah, I, this is very public. This is just that, me yeah. This that that one place that will remain unnamed on the east coast of the United States. Um, I think they're being investigated. I don't know. I don't even care to look. Uh, but I know they you know supposedly or maybe it was just on the documentary they were selling tigers, you know, through back channels, you know, private Facebook groups, things like that. But the wildlife trade of primates and some of these higher order creatures is going on like cheetahs. You see it on social media, you know, Pip and I look at it and she shows me this video and this cheetah is like, I know in Asia, it's like a status symbol. And what they do in the wild is they go and kill the mom and grab the cubs. Or if they, the mom's not around, they'll just grab the cubs and those cubs are shipped, shipped off to parts of the world to become pets. It is not cool. And, and you shouldn't like that and it shouldn't support that. And, you know, uh, some of my son looking at some of this stuff on YouTube, like he's looking up at animal videos and you see them swimming with tigers. And he's like, oh, dad, that's so cool. And I, and I actually have to educate him. I'm like, buddy, it, it looks cool. But no, that poor thing, you know, it doesn't belong there in that pool with them. It belongs in the wild, you know, blah, blah, blah. So we all need to do our part. And, and I think I feel like the world is turning against the exotic animal trade. And uh, I support that. And, and I know we don't let our opinions bleed in very often, but when you see a slow loris teeth being ripped out and suffering this well, species, and, it's just, yeah. You know. And then I was even reading that there will be some good, some good doers that will try to like buy them and rescue them from whatever market they're at or something. But these animals, they something like there's something like a ninety percent death rate, eighty to ninety percent. They quickly die from either infections, stress, or poor diet, previous neglect. So even you know, some of these people that are trying to save them to help them, they can't. And with the other thing too is when their teeth are removed, like they can never be released in the wild because they don't have any defense mechanisms. So yeah, this one just really, um, yeah, this one this week. Chris really got to me. I mean, it, it just, I, I don't know. Um, cause of course we cover a lot of species that are, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in the exotic pet trade. Uh, but yeah, uh, I had no idea it was such a problem and contributing so much to their, um, to their decline. And yeah. then just also from a welfare perspective too, like they're like, they don't like to be, I mean, they're nocturnal, so they don't want to be around bright lights and mm-hmm. your cameras and uh, the social media and all that kind yeah. of stuff. 
No, no, we can't support it. And, and just, you know, one last point about this, you know, we talked about breeding like that. A lot of, you know, exotic animals are bred, uh, to be sold. The slow lords does not breed well in captivity. Or no, it does care. not. So mm-hmm. pretty much every slow loris you see as a quote unquote pet was taken from the wild directly. So if we see any celebrities with it, they need to be shamed. I'm sorry, this is wrong and educate. You know, it's like, I don't know, shaming maybe it's, it's I mean, that's a harsh word, but education, education, education. education. It's huge. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that's why, like I said, the organizations we're going to talk about at the end of the podcast. I mean, that's some a big part of their mission is education, education, education. Um, not only for people like us overseas, but also for uh, local people that live, live with these, uh, live with these animals. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it's all about, learning and growing and evolving and, and helping conserve these, these beautiful, beautiful creatures. All right. Well, before we get to evolution, I think we should just take a quick break and we'll be right back. All right, we're back. Okay, Angie, this was a fun one to kind of go down uh, because the slow loris is as a primate it has a unique corner, I guess, of our family tree. You sure. know, as, as mm-hmm. primates. So just looking at their classification, uh, mammals, 5,500 species, we've got tons to go. Primates, we have over 600 species or subspecies. So we have plenty to pick from and we've covered quite a bit of them. Now where the slow loris gets interesting is when you get in this suborder. So primates break off as haplorhini. We've covered this in, in every primate episode, but hapler hinny. It bears is, repeating. It does. It does. So then you get your seminiforms going up to your great apes, your lesser apes, your monkeys, and your tertiaries. The strepsirhinny is where the slow loris falls, which is with the lemurs. Mm-hmm. So crazily unique. Uh, out of all the primates we've covered, because, you know, the lemurs have that niche in Madagascar. And then the other part of the suborder is in Southeast Asia. So completely crazy branch of the tree. Now in the Strepsirhini, there's 114 species. So not only do you have the lemurs, the Galagos or the bush babies, which we've talked to, I've talked about before, the Pados and the lorises. The family is Lorisidae. So this is the Lorises, the Potos, and the Anquitabos. That's a big one. Yeah. The Potos and the Anquitibos. Tabos, I'm sure I'm yeah. pronouncing it, and I apologize to any experts out there. But this makes me want to cover them because I had not heard of that either of those species. Yeah. 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 They look the Potos absolutely like. And the Anquitabos. Yeah. They absolutely look like. Uh, like, yeah, like lemurs, they all do. And there's about yeah. 13 species in there. Now, getting down to the slow loris, the genus is Nyctocebus. And then this is makes up with the nine species. Well, I just want to add in too, within the loris and a fam- family, uh, down a different line are the slender lorises. And then, of course, the pygmy slow loris. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So all pretty much closely related. Now within the loris yourself, going from largest to smallest, the Bengal slow loris endangered, Javan slow loris critically endangered, Sumatran slow loris endangered, Sunda or greater slow loris endangered, the Bornean slow loris vulnerable, the Cayenne River slow loris vulnerable, the Benka slow loris Critically endangered, I think that's the one that might be extinct, they think. It's just they haven't seen one in 60, 70 years. The pygmy, like you talked about, endangered. And then the Philippine slow loris is vulnerable. So just on their names, you can kind of tell Javan, Bengal, Sunda, kind of where they live. Now, looking at their evolution, primates are relatives uh, 55 million years. But now some scientists are saying... We might even have been like 65 to 90 million years ago. Some debate going on there, but we probably looked, you know, like persimians, like today's lemurs, but it was more like a fat squirrel. So 
That's where our DNA runs 90 <laughs> million years ago or 55 million years ago at least. And we know the Strepsirhinia diverged about 55 million years ago. So after that mass extinction event is when you had this radiation of them. It was a very, very interesting article I was reading about this. It was Extreme Primates, the Ecology and Evolution of Asian Slow Lorises. Lorises. But basically what they described is this is just one of the most intriguing mammals. And a lot of it has to do with their physiology and, and also this, this venom that they produce. So what this paper was, was, was talking about was uh, lorises are really thought to evolve in Africa. And then they split about 40 million years ago from the Galagos and the Pados. We first see them in the Asian fossil record about 23 million years ago. And then they speciesed out about 10 million years ago into the species we see today, roughly. You know, they, they're, there's probably a little bit of changes going on. That's such a long time ago. But they don't think they've changed much since then. So this is one of our most ancient cousins. Right. I love that. Mm -hmm. That is on the verge of extinction. So cousin slow, cousin Louie, whatever we want to call him, slow Louie. Lori, cousin Lori. Cousin Lori. Uh, we need to save them. And uh, there's still a lot that we don't know. Like reading these articles, they're like, there isn't not a lot known uh, about their past, their evolution. Some of the venom stuff's interesting. We'll get to here in a minute. But yeah, just fascinating creature. Fascinating, fascinating, fascinating. Okay, switching gears, physiology, real quick. Live up to 20 years, that's what I found. I don't know if you saw something like that. Yeah, 20, 22 years, okay, 26 okay. years. Now, this is where I had fun. I mean, obviously, physiology is, is what you and I really love. How slow is a slow loris? <laughs> <laughs> so, it moves at about 1.18 miles per hour. So they are it's pretty slow. It's pretty slow. slow. And they do slow. have a very slow metabolism, right? Because if you're a slow animal, um, you're going to have a slow metabolism because you don't need to generate a lot of energy to move quickly, like, you know, fight or flight animals. Let me ask you this What do you think is faster, a loris or a sloth? Ooh, I love Imagine this a, question. A sloth. Mm -hmm. A race. Yes, a sloth comes down, goes to that latrine, if I remember mm -hmm. right, and there's a jaguar, and it's like, I better hurry up or I'm dead. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or you have a slow loris doing the same thing with a cloud of leopard. If that did happen, though, I think the slow loris would be faster. <laughs> sloth's toast <laughs> it's toast the sloth is so toast oh uh, and i really to... just went on the fact that the sloth is bigger you know yeah. so it's gotta it's not gonna be able to accelerate as fast uh, the sloth but... the poor sloth <laughs> i go back to sloth. zootopia and that whole dmv scene but which is the drivers where we get our driver's license to the states and how slow it is the slow okay the sloth when threatened, can move at 0.16 mile per hour or 0.27. <laughs> it, wow, 0 0.127. Okay. It's it's dead. Yeah. All right, all right, all right. Okay, so that, that makes it fun. Now, the slow loris doesn't, we, we don't think it comes down from the canopy where it's up there, but did you see their hands? I'm in love with their hands. How do you even feet. describe that? What is that? Well, they're they're made for grasping. Yes, they're they're yeah. strong and mm. they have flexible wrists and ankles. And that's I mean, they really are made to hold on to things and their digits I, I just when you say our 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 second or third cousin removed Lori, I mean that they, they do. They look like our hands, but the fingertips, but a little bit more bigger and bulbous uh, as far as the fingertip goes, because it's pretty cool. Uh, the slow loris has a special network of capillaries in both their hands and their feet called the retia mirabilia. 
as I think if I'm saying that right. Uh, and it basically allows them to cling to these branches for hours with a lot of pressure without their fingers and toes going numb. And this probably comes in handy because they are so slow. So even when they do decide they want to move up a branch or down a branch, uh, it takes them a long time to, to get there. Uh, so we don't want to have our have our digits going numb. And the other thing, Chris, that's really cool about the slow loris is that they have this thumb that basically kind of can move at 180 degrees from the rest of the fingers. So that once again can help them grasp as well. So really flexible, really strong, uh, and and they're just there hanging on. Of course, it's important to add too that like all the lemur forms, so all the lemurs, they have a grooming claw on the second toe of each foot to help keep them well-groomed. Well, Cousin Lori has a lot of <laughs> weird adaptations too. They, they have more thoracic vertebrae. So, you know, leading up to your neck, um, between your shoulders, right? So they have more there, fewer caudal ver vertebrae uh, than us. And like you said, very uh, greater articulations where their, their ankles and wrists allow them to grasp and move in the trees. Like you said, grasping hands, they just... They are radical, radical animals. Well, and it's hard to sit and watch a video of them moving because they do move so slow. <laughs> That's but, a sloth, uh, but yeah. No. But um, it was described, too, as like a snake moving through the trees. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They have this, this super bendy spine. Uh, because, oh, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get yeah, there. Yeah, uh, because yeah. of this extra thoracic vertebra. So really, really cool. Yeah, and there's some some cool stuff when it comes to their, their venom. So we'll get there, the, the mimicry. Mm -hmm. The tongue, they have two tongues, right? One for getting nectar and flowers and things like that. And then mm -hmm. they have like that, what, toothbrush underneath. So that's mm -hmm. unique. The sublingua. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. helps remove debris from the tooth comb. Yeah. And the other thing about their tongue is they have one of the longest for primates. Oh, okay. For the yeah. next, for slurping up the nectar. Yeah, okay. Which makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and then, Chris, you've got to talk about their eyes, too, right? So they have these huge eyes that are forward-facing, so they have stereo vision. Uh, and they also have this uh, layer, uh, a reflective layer uh, called a tabitum lucidum that basically helps them see better in the dark. Um, but it's also can be problematic for them because when they are being poached uh, by the pet trade or whatever, uh, they will, their, their lights are, their eyes are reflective. So they easily give themselves away and then they don't move. So they freeze. So they're easy to catch. Uh, so, but really, re really unique. And lastly, Chris, I learned another fun term this week uh, talking about the slow loris nose. And they are known for having a wet nose. So if you think about the difference between an animal that has like a dry nose versus your dog that has like a wet nose, and this is called ranarium. So they have this moist skin on their nose that keeps it nice and wet, which is important because of course the nose is a sense organ and species along evolutionary lines, or at least for morphology, I would say, can be described as having a renarium, which is a wet nose, or not. So it's pretty common to have this furless nose, of course, in a lot of the mammals that we cover. I had just never heard of it being called a renarium. I, I always thought about, oh, your dog's nose is wet, so it's healthy. Uh, that kind of thing. But yeah, there's actually a term for it, renarium. Okay. That's, that's, I love this podcast. I, I, know, that's gonna, I know, I know, That is going to be on Jeopardy someday. You guys are welcome. <laughs> yes, I know. I know that. I know that. I know that. I know that. Well, but it, then it all comes down to the venom, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's what they have all of this unique physiology. They are ancient, completely ancient primate, completely different from, from any of our other relatives. Mm -hmm. We all have them in our family. We know who we're talking about. <laughs> Especially now, around the holiday season. Yeah, so it's coming up. Now, what what's interesting is, is venom in mammals is 
so different. Now, remember, difference between venom and poison. Poison is if you ingest it, it's toxic. Venom means it's a toxic, toxic substance that the animal has a delivery mechanism for. So we say snakes are venomous because they have fangs and they bite you and they give you venom. Spiders are venomous because they can bite you and spread their venom. Poison dart frogs are poisonous because if you lick them or eat them, they can kill you because the toxins, right? They don't have a way of spreading that toxin. Now, the venomous mammals, we do know American short-tailed shrews, the European water shrews, Haitian solenodons, which looks like a shrew. Yes, solenodons. Solenodons, very crazy looking creature. They are believed to be venomous. What's now, their delivery mechanism? I don't know if it's biting or anything. I didn't really look it up. Ah, me neither. That's uh. makes that's that's why this podcast is fun. They're definitely on the list. All right. Now, platypus. How do they deliver? Do you remember? Oh, that yeah. one I remember. They have spurs yeah. on their yeah. hind legs, but it's just the males. Just the males, right? Just the males. Mm-hmm. So the females don't. So don't so all of our Australian listeners out there, you probably already know this, you know, don't pick up a platypus. We shouldn't, anybody should be picking up any wild animals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now they do think oral secretions of vampire bats may have some venom in it. So they're looking at that, but mm-hmm. that's it. I mean, that's it for venomous uh, mammals. Now. Yeah. Not too many took this convergent evolution tactic, right? I mean, yeah. for all the, all the mammals in the animal kingdom, right? Right, 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 right. Now, the slow loris. Why? How about yeah. why? Okay, why? So the slow loris does not use venom against prey, right? Now they are omnivores, but they don't need the venom to to hunt and and eat things. It's purely defense. And like we said, the tickling loris video where they raise their arms—that's a defensive position. They lick quickly the glands near their armpits. And these chemicals are mixed with saliva. Now they have this powerful venom. And they think they get it from tree gum that slow lorises will tap into the the trees, eat the resin within, and this gum digesting saliva helps them produce this potent venom. And they can start producing it as as young as six weeks old. They will will start to, you know, um, develop this. Now, like I said, typically most people, if you're bit, it's supposedly very, very painful, but some people have died because anaphylactic shock, you know, like bee stings with some people. Um, but it's it's very painful. You don't want to get bit by them. And you can kind of maybe jump into some of the, the whys too with the defense mm-hmm. stuff, but this all evolved through... we. we what do you call it? Malarian mimicry of cobra snakes? That's one theory yeah, uh, yeah. as far as, as potentially why. Uh, so um, I don't know. I mean, it's hard with theories uh, to know exactly, obviously, if it's true or not. But yes, I mean, because they have the way they move through the trees with this extra vertebra really slow. Uh, their color patteration patterns are actually somewhat similar to those of true cobras and their vocalizations, which we haven't really talked about yet until we get to behavior. Uh, but the vocalization of slow loris for the adults, uh, can include whistles, um, long calls called keckers, short keckers, little calls, grunts, snarls, screams, and infants have been known to squick, squeak or click if they're disturbed. So I'm not really sure exactly how this relates to a noise that a cobra would make, but I'm sure there must be some similarities because I mean, the slow loris is not a super loud creature, right? And so there, so some of these uh, vocalizations might be similar tones uh, to signal um, for an aggressive snake. It, it blows your mind when you think about it. And you know, that, Obviously, primates, higher you know, higher primates have well developed brains, 
you know, can see something maybe, you know, oh, that will help me survive. And it should be noted that the uh, the slow loris does have to come down to the ground sometimes and they're extremely vulnerable when they're on the ground, right? Yeah. And it's because they're so slow. Yeah. <laughs> so they're, that's not where they want to, they're definitely vulnerable. And if they look or sound like something else, that mm-hmm. well, is no. Some of it, like I think the mimicry, right? So they see it and they're like, okay, if I do this, the, the predators will leave me alone. They mm-hmm. tend not to get picked off as often because a predator might see that and say, nah, I'm not going to mess with that. Uh, you know, they have the venom to back it up sometimes. Oh, the last time I attacked one of these, I got bit. It hurt really bad, like that snake so maybe mm-hmm. they leave them alone so over time natural selection these animals are gonna keep those traits right and mm-hmm. pass it on to their offspring mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's just oh it's just fascinating angie it's just yeah fascinating. well and of course this venom that can be used as a defense mechanism uh against other species uh to help you know keep other species off of it but Researchers are finding out too that um, they will use it on one one another for yeah, I, well, yeah. Yeah, territory yeah. or breeding rights and things like that. Uh, in fact, uh, the researcher that I've talked about, Dr. Nakaris, uh, talks about seeing other slow loris that have had a bite mark and it looks like half of their faces melted off. Yeah, yeah. I saw that picture. Because yeah. Yeah, that venom can cause uh, pain, swelling, and basically a festering wound that yeah, basically doesn't heal or takes a long, long time to heal. So it's not just other species that need to be careful, uh, but they may have evolved as a way to defend themselves uh, from other Saloris. Which well, I can't even imagine it, what that fight looks like. I know, I know, like, like sloths fighting. Uh. <laughs> right, but because they're nocturnal, we're still, you know, we're still in the dark. Pardon the pun about a lot of their behaviors, or maybe capturing them on video, and uh, it's just so it's, it's so important to learn more about them in order to protect them. Well, the one part of it I read, not to take away from some of your behaviors, but is the moms will lick the glands, mix the saliva. And then lick their babies, so mm-hmm. the babies sure. have venom on their fur, and they leave right them when they're there. young. Yeah, mm-hmm. so then they can go and forage and stuff. And it's thought to deter predators from eating the baby, right? Right. But there's venom yeah. on it. The smell of it, maybe, or something else, is like, nope, not going to mess with that. Exactly, because as you mentioned, it takes a little while for the um, for the infants to be able to uh, create their own. Uh, and I just find it so interesting that this chemical that they're secreting in the brachial region of their arms, so it's kind of the area between uh, the elbow and the armpit. Uh, they, you know, they they lick this this noxious oil, uh, and then it basically mixes with the saliva to concoct this venom, right? And the venom is related to it's not completely a cat allergen, but it's related to the cat allergen known as uh, Fel-D1, which is found in cat saliva, but obviously much more potent. So I guess individuals that have cat allergens can be even more affected by um, by a bite. So if you're out there thinking, oh, I can't have a cat because I'm allergic, I'll just get a slow loris. Yeah, don't, <laughs> don't do it. Don't even do don't it. Do it. Um, but I thought it was really super interesting because they do have pretty other primates, so they have pretty decent sized canines. And um, the Solaris has evolved this little groove in the canine that basically the saliva that's been mixed with the noxious um, elbow brachial armpit uh, oil, it basically fills that groove of their canines. And oh, so wow. when they, you know, and these canines are strong, so if they do bite, they can actually pierce through a bone. Oh geez. Yeah. So yeah. So the basically this it, it yeah, this this saliva venom stuff kind of through capillary action in their canine can just really get into the victim and get into their bloodstream. So yeah, it's uh yeah, it's 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 obviously very rare for it to really impact a, a kill a human, but it has been documented before and just so fascinating. Yeah. Well, so they look cute to us, yes. but that white, that white stripe and those dark eyes yeah. is a warning signal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also known as so. Stay away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Well, before we get to more behaviors, real quick, like I said, these are omnivores. They'll eat insects, uh, reptiles, eggs, uh, some other arthropods, small birds, maybe. Generally, fruits and gums. And so, some of the research that's been done, diets 
predominantly fruit and gum trees, uh, 30% insects, other prey from a couple studies. And then a different one showed a little, it, I, I guess it's going to depend on the species and where they're located. Um, a lot of nectar, fruit, and very few arthropods or other animal prey. So there's there's a few studies out there showing that their, their diets do vary. But basically, gum trees, you know, to get that venom going, uh, fruit, nectar, I think that's predominantly what is in their diets. Now, looking at other behaviors outside the venom, what else do they do? <laughs> Just the lores. Well, I actually had a quick question for you, a little bit oh, more no. about physiology as we, it has to do oh, yeah. with their behavior. Okay. Okay. So the slow loris, of course, is nocturnal, right? We've been talking about that throughout the podcast. So they're going to spend most of their night foraging uh, and looking for the food, all the food, different food items that you just mentioned. So I don't know how we got, oh, we were talking about hormones in one of my physiology classes in my animal uh, equine physiology classes. And we're talking about melatonin, right? The wonderful hormone that's secreted from the pineal gland at nighttime uh, to help make us tired. But of course, in horses and other seasonal animals, uh, melatonin is really involved in regulating, helping to regulate their cycles. Uh, It's very circadian-like hormone. Anyways, one of the students asked, and I had a proud teacher moment, asking me, well, do nocturnal animals secrete melatonin. So I thought I would pose a question to you, Dr. Yes. Mortensen. I'm just going to say yes. Absolutely. Okay. It just has different effects on the brain. Oh, man, I couldn't stump I couldn't stump you. <laughs> Not with the hormones. Uh, Not when it comes to hormones. I just I've yes. taught a lot. Yeah, I've taught a lot of, uh, you know, reproductive physiology mm-hmm. and especially a lot so, of hormone research, yeah. I I always tease the students when they ask me tough questions. I said, you know, I I agreed with you. I said, I probably, uh, but I don't know. And I love them. Like, this is what I'll be doing. I'm like, well, you're watching Netflix. You can just know that your professor's at home reading about melatonin. Well, here's, here's, here's my thing. Exactly what okay. I did. So here we go. Teaching moment, not for you, for the listeners, because you know this. Melatonin has two effects on species, right? In some species that are seasonal breeders, it suppresses reproduction, right? Horses, zebras, uh, we know that. What species does melatonin stimulate reproductive hormones? I just taught this last week in my <laughs> class. That's going to be all your short day yeah, uh, seasonal breeders. breeders. So, mm-hmm. bah, all your goats, your 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 sheep, your your antelope, those types that have shorter gestation. So, so melatonin to me, even though in us it makes us really sleepy. Uh, tired, where serotonin is the one that's secreted during the day. So I'd imagine the slow loris or nocturnal animals, melatonin has some effect, but it probably isn't making them sleepy like it does with us. Right. Uh, There's definitely probably some physiology stuff that we're still learning about it, but I found a paper that answered part of the question. Oh, there you go. There you go. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. The paper I found was published in uh, the journal Review Endocrinology Metabolic Disorders. It's called Melatonin Formation in Mammals in Vivo Perspectives by authors Chetitoraj and Liu. And what they found is the short answer is yes, nocturnal animals do secrete melatonin but they're different in how they secrete it. And so to quote uh, the authors, they said, in in nocturnal animals such as rats and hamsters, the onset of melatonin secretion is markedly delayed after dark onset. In contrast, melatonin in humans rapidly surges following dark onset without latency. The rapid release of melatonin following the dark onset in non-rodent diurnal mammals um, also expresses significant quantities of um, a chemical called ANNAT, and I won't go into that's post-transcriptionally controlled, and then we can really, really dark out about all this, all these other pathways. But yes, the short answer is uh, yes, they do secrete it, but in a different, uh, in a different way. Uh, so not as early on. Uh, and if there's other signaling going, signaling mechanisms going on, this one called ANAT and um, others. So yeah, there's okay. the answer there uh, for Good the question. most part. Good there's question. still a lot. There's still a lot that we don't know, but 
but uh, yeah, uh, but they're definitely not tired at, at in the in in the nocturnal hours. Uh, they're moving slow, but yes, the uh, the Soloris does hang out in the trees and they move around looking for food. And while the Soloris is foraging for food, at times they can hang. Uh, from a branch by one or two feet for long periods of time, if need be. Um, they're really quiet when they move. They kind of go, they move cautiously, hand over hand movements between trees. Uh, oh, I have a note here that does say they do climb down when they need to go to the bathroom. So there you go. Oh, okay. Just like, okay. Just like the sloth. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm, they're, mm-hmm. But they're what? 10 times as fast. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> look at their quicker. Look at their quicker. Uh, uh. And a study um, of Soloris in captivity showed that uh, 24% of the time they were doing quadrupedal uh, locomotion, 21% of the time they were climbing, they were in suspension, uh, 29%, and bridging 23% of the time. So, they, yeah, they definitely have a lot of different movements when they're up there in their trees. Um, and of course, one of the behaviors for Soloris that, uh, does not help them out at all is this freezing position. Um, because when they do, uh, get startled instead of running, they're not going to run. They're just going to freeze. Sometimes they'll cover their face when they're spotted. Uh, so that is, um, it doesn't, isn't a great defense mechanism when it comes to uh, people trying to poach them. Right. Now, while uh, Soloris are foraging at nighttime, they often are solitary. Uh, there was a study in Sunda Soloris's that said they're mostly solitary, solitary. Only 8% of their time was near another individual. Uh, but there was a really awesome research study done by Dr. Nakaris and her group. The study is just incredible. Uh, Dr. Nakaris's team spent eight years uh, studying the critically endangered Javan slow loris in Javas, Indonesia, and they collected 7,000 hours of studying their behavior. Um, they equipped 82 slow loris with radio collars to watch their movements, and once in a while, they would catch them up to track their health. And during all these routine checks, they basically found out that, uh, as I kind of alluded to earlier, is that there is a lot of signs of these horrendous, uh, really bad bite wounds from other lorises. So they believe that uh, males fight big time over females, and then females will also fight other soloris to protect their offspring. And then uh, both sexes of the soloris will aggressively defend their territory. So when we say night gremlin, I think that gives a whole new meaning to it, right? Like they are not messing around. Like (laughs) cute, cute, friendly, uh, (laughs) not so much. Uh, uh, they, uh, they, they're going to be tough about their territory and tough about their breeding. So, uh, yes, uh, primarily a solitary animal. That's for sure. And of course, we mentioned the different distinct calls of the slow lorries, which will vary depending on which species uh, we're talking about. And of course, uh, the intensity of the different vocalizations will change um, when male and female are breeding or looking for each other. And what I also found was interesting is um, both young and adult slow lorries use ultrasonic vocalization when they're exploring new habitat. So I thought that was really cool. Uh, And then as far as scent marking goes, they'll use urine, which is probably the most dominant form of communication uh, to help also mark their territories and basically warn the other Soloris, like, don't let me bite you. Stay out of here. (laughs) Try to get away. Uh, Exactly. Uh, Exactly. So as we mentioned, cute, but Deadly, not only to other animals, but potentially to each other as well. Well, and I, I didn't read, I yeah, remissed on this one, reading up on any of the repro. So I'm kind of excited to learn what their what their strategies are, <laughs> not, not getting bit. Now, for the, the males that do make it through, half their face bitten off or whatever, <laughs> or the females. But the repro is fascinating. So what do we know? Well, of course, a lot of what we know um, are from these radio collaring studies with Dr. Nakaris and her team, but uh, there's still a lot of questions that we have. And of course, uh, observing them under human care has been somewhat helpful, uh, 
But as Chris mentioned earlier in the podcast, a lot of a lot of the solores don't do super well. So depending on the species, uh, we do know that uh, breeding with solores may be continuous throughout the year. Um, now in Sundus lolorises, uh, there was a seasonal, uh, a seasonal influx of breeding between June and mid-September. And it is thought that there might be multiple periods of sexual re- receptivity throughout the year, once again, depending on the species. Uh, but when a male does find a female in estrus, he will track her. Uh, however, it is the female that then allows and or initiates the act of actual breeding. And what the female will do is she hangs from a branch um, within view of the male so that he can see her and she'll vocalize to get his attention. And then once the male Solaris feels comfortable, he will come over and breeding will take place uh, up in the trees, um, usually uh, while suspended with hands and feet, uh, holding some different branches for support. So I'll let you have that visual there. But once the female has been bred, um, her gestation period is going to be on average about 188 days in which she'll have one offspring, although there is record of twinning, but it's really rare. And once the infant is born, uh, the female will often basically park the infant on a branch while she goes out and finds food. Um, and sometimes the, she'll carry the infant with her while she is hunting. And as Chris alluded to a little bit earlier in the podcast, that the female will often lick the young before it develops its own uh, brachial glands and that kind of noxious oil. So the female will lick the young, covering them with its own toxic oil so that the young can be protected while the female will go off and forage. And so... I couldn't really find any evidence of any uh, male parental care. However, I could be wrong and also keep in mind too that we still are learning a lot about them in the wild and studying studying these behaviors since they are nocturnal. But what we do know about Solaris parental care is that is that the offspring are weaned between three to six months of age. And uh Throughout this time, the female will demonstrate and provide an example to the young one of how to move through the trees and how to forage. Now, just like their name Slow Loris uh, represents, I would say in general, their reproduction is slow. So the sexual maturity can happen between about 18, 24 months in females and younger in males, between around 17, 18 months, the sexual maturity for the slow loris in the female is going to be around 24 months of age, but can happen as early as 17 months. And the male does not become sexually mature until about 20 months, so almost two years. And then they're producing typically one offspring per year uh, that is lucky to then make it. There's estimates out there that's not a lot of the, there's a pretty high infant mortality rate. So when we talk about conserving and repopulating some of these slow loris uh, populations that have been devastated in the past 20 years, it's going to take a slow time. Yeah. 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 I mean, they're, they're in the middle of the food web. They're not top predators. So mm-hmm. not reproducing that quickly to get picked off. It's going to take another couple of years to get one that's reproductive available, but then they've got to fight off the others and they've got a lot going against them. They really do. You know, like we said, every species is endangered, heading towards extinction. Vulnerable means, you know, they're just a couple steps away from being critically endangered. The Banca against Low Loris was last spotted in 1937. So it's most likely extinct. We just uh, have not fully confirmed that yet. And probably because it's pretty remote regions of Asia. So, a lot, a lot against them. Again, we talked about the pet stuff. Just don't encourage it on social media. Not shame people. That's not a, a good tactic. No, education, education, mm-hmm. education. Yeah, that's what we're all about. But I know there's some good organizations out there. I, I've, I've got some of that good info on the pet stuff. But who mm-hmm. are you uh, picking this week? 
Well, I want to give a big shout out to the San Diego Zoo and our buddies over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have had some success at um, caring for and breeding the pygmy slowloris, which is the cousin to the normal slowloris. So that's good. And they, they really um, push a lot of education material out there here in the United States and are really helping unravel some of the mysteries about them under human care figuring out how to feed them. And because as Chris mentioned, they do not typically breed well in captivity. I mean, really not well at all. So the San Diego Zoo has written husbandry manuals, manuals for Soloris, uh, promoted public awareness, conducted field surveys, and also work internationally to support slow loris rescue facilities. So big shout out, of course, to the San Diego Zoo. But I want to turn most of my attention this week to uh, a nonprofit called the Little Fireface Project. Uh, and this is, can be found at www.nocturma.org. And that's N-O-C-T-U-R-A-M-A.org. And of course, we'll put it on our show notes and on our own social media page. And you can also go to Facebook and just search for Little Fireface Project. Uh, This is going to be led by uh, Dr. Anna Nakaris, one of the professors and researchers that I was highlighting in the podcast because she's been working with these guys, these slow loris, uh, for several years, her and her graduate students and her team. The project's scope of research is widespread. Uh, They do behavioral ecology, museum studies, genetics, acoustics, taxonomy, tons of conservation education, and other forms of ecology. They conduct outreach education programs for local communities, and they get them to join the conservation movement that cares all about slow loris and protecting them. So really, really cool research projects based uh, studying their venom. Um, once again, doing the radio collaring studies. They uh, do uh, GPS tracking, also looking at the Javan palm civets. Uh, we need to cover the civets. Yes. Yeah. Uh, they just have a a ton of really cool information out there. And I just, I just love uh, these nonprofits that are started by the people that are the experts, right? Uh, Dr. Anna Nakaris. I mean, uh, my favorite, which I'm going to check out uh, later tonight is they have a, um, uh, for the holiday season, I was just on their Facebook little Fireface project. Uh, they have their whole own Etsy page that you can help uh, purchase something for the holiday season and that has to do with either a job in slow loris or a job in palm civet and basically uh, put money back into their nonprofit to help protect the, the slow loris. So we can all do that sitting right here on our phones um, from the, from the, from the comfort spot of our couch or our bedroom and help uh, push this mission forward of Dr. Nakaris and the little Fireface project. So two thumbs up. Great work. Uh, I love this organization, like them on Facebook, follow them on social media, and you can also find more information on our show notes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Check them out. Check them out. Fun species, Angie. Very unique. Very unique. So cool. So cool. I love it. We've had some really good species lately. And I know we'll be back next week with another one. But uh, And if you do is one big favor, share your favorite episode on social media. That will help us out so much. We are growing uh, all over the world. We have listeners. So wherever you are, from the bottom of my heart, and I know I can say this for Angie, from the bottom of her heart, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, everyone. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.